Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast. America's days of reckoning are fast approaching. That's right, days of reckoning. Between brutal policing and gun violence, America has been rocked in a way that neither problem can be ignored as they have been, inarguably, in the past. The Derek Chauvin murder trial is lurching toward a conclusion. Plus, the killings of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago, as well as the unjustified pepper spraying of 2nd Lieutenant Karan Nazario in Windsor, Virginia, have all come together to put a harsh spotlight on American police culture. Now, when we talk about American police culture, we ought to be very clear about the fact that, for example, some police and some public officials, not all, but some, contributed money to the defense of Kyle Rittenhouse. Some of you may have forgotten who he is, but he's the guy who allegedly killed two people as he crossed state lines with an illegal AR-15. I hope some of you remember that. But keep in mind that there are law enforcement people, people who are sworn to uphold and protect the law and protect the citizens of their jurisdictions, and they contributed to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense. Keep in mind, too, that Dylan Roof, some of you may remember him, massacred a group of people in a church. Cops bought him a Burger King after they arrested him. This is police culture. Just like the rant, the online screed form that the New York City Police Department, not all the officers, but too many of the officers, use to try and anonymously spew racial hatred, anti-Semitism, misogyny, uh, and just completely over-the-top crap. And it all becomes part of police culture, and we see the result. We see George Floyd. We see Dante Wright. We see Adam Toledo. We see Breonna Taylor. We see all of these black people, unarmed black people, and Adam Toledo allegedly had a gun, but the video footage that was taken at the scene showed him turning, dropping the gun, and putting his hands up at the time he was shot. A 13-year-old kid. And he's not the youngest. <laughs> Keep in mind, there have been 12-year-olds going back to when I first started working in radio. Clifford Glover, 1972, 12 years old, totally unarmed, shot and killed by a cop. Now, Dante Wright, who was 20 years old, was killed when a now former police officer allegedly mistook her gun for a taser and shot him. Dante Wright was stopped for having an expired license plate, but then Officer Kim Potter tried to arrest him on an outstanding warrant. That's when she pulled her gun, according to body cam footage. Potter has been charged with second-degree manslaughter after resigning, along with Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon. 
Dante Wright's killing has spawned days of protests in Brooklyn Center, not far outside Minneapolis where the Chauvin trial is taking place. You know, police apologists love to point out the fact that Dante Wright and others shouldn't have resisted. They should have complied. They should have done what the cops told them, blah, blah, blah. What you see in some body cam footage is the fact, I'm not making this up, the fact that there will be two or three cops at a scene all barking conflicting orders. Get your hands up. Get out of the car. Get on the ground. Get your hands up. Just over and over and over again. And you really don't know, in some cases, which orders you're supposed to comply with. But the plain fact of the matter is, this whole he shouldn't have resisted thing is nonsense. Too many black people haven't even had the chance to comply before they were killed. Breonna Taylor, shot in her bed, comes immediately to mind. No, these most recent events must point to how too many cops feel the need to police black people. That is, with the presumption of guilt. Windows too dark? Pull your gun. Kid drops a gun allegedly, turns and complies with cop, cops' commands? Shoot! It goes on and on and on. I used to think that this behavior could be excised by training. Now, I'm not so sure. In fact, I don't think so. This will continue unless or until ordinary, regular cops stop tolerating brutal officers in their midst. That and the certainty of just punishment for brutal acts, even if they result in death, especially if they result in death. You cannot say to a cop, well, you can't contribute to somebody's defense committee. If it's Kyle Rittenhouse or whoever, some guy, apparently some cop in Norfolk, you know, said you're doing, you know, keep your head up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We support you. We back you. They have a First Amendment right to do that. Now, the question of whether they have a First Amendment right to have a gun and police black people, that to me is very much another question. Now, one of the cops who drew their guns on Lieutenant Cameron Nazario in Windsor, Virginia, has been fired. But the police chief in that city or town said an apology for the actions of those police wasn't warranted. That police chief should lose his job. There can be no excuse for police pepper spraying an innocent man, an innocent unarmed man who was serving his country and who was black. Now, let's look at another situation that ended up very differently than the ones I just described. About an hour away from Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, is the town of Hutchinson. Now, that is, again, for information's sake, an hour from the places where George Floyd and Dante Wright were killed. In the incident that I'm about to let you know about, some of you may know already, a 61-year-old white man took exception to being told to wear a mask inside a lumber store. He allegedly attacked a store employee and then fled. Police caught up with him after a, quote, slow speed chase, at which time the man allegedly got violent. 
a police officer got trapped in the man's window, at which point he took off speeding with the cop hanging on. The man also allegedly hit the cop in the head with a hammer. What most media failed to mention, but a bystander's video did show, was that the driver allegedly rammed a police car as he took off. All that and injuries to the cop that required hospitalization. The man who allegedly caused all this was taken into custody without being tased, without being shot. Now, here's something to think about. If Officer Kim Potter in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, had used the same level of restraint as the cops in Hutchinson, she'd still be a cop and Dante Wright would still be alive. This disparity cannot be explained by someone not following commands. In fact, there are numerous examples of police use of restraint when confronted with violent white suspects while pulling guns on black people during traffic stops. Now, again, you know, I know there are going to be people who are, you know, four square in the corner of the police who will say, well, they're not the same thing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is there are far too many instances where black people end up, if not getting shot, being harassed, being pepper sprayed, as is the case in Lieutenant Nazario's situation, having all sorts of, even beyond all that, having indignities, being pulled out of their car with their kid in the back seat kind of indignity over nonsense. And keep in mind, Nazario was never charged with a crime. The man was in his fatigues, for God's sake. And all those people who talk about supporting the troops, I don't see that many of them jumping up to support this particular soldier after this particular encounter with these particular cops. Now, Again, we're talking about disparate policing. So you have to ask yourself, well, what is the solution to this? Is it defunding the police? Is it banning the pulling of police guns during traffic stops, which I've heard? Or will black America simply have to deal with racist policing forever? Now, here's an interesting idea. I forgot what media I saw it. It was not my original idea, but it's a very interesting one. Since the 20 cities with the largest police departments in America have paid over $2 billion for alleged misconduct and civil rights violations just from 2015 to 2020, and by the way, about half of those have been paid by New York City, how about paying future settlements from police pension funds rather than by taxpayers. The logic would be that brutality would drop if cops thought their future pensions might be at risk. Now, I personally continue to oppose the whole notion of defunding the police. I do that for practical reasons. First of all, I know good cops. That's number one, both current and former. And I know that defunding the police will hurt 
people in the long run who have the right, who ought to have the ability to expect non-racist policing from the people that they fund and that they empower with life and death decision-making over people's lives. As my good friend Keith Warfield once said to me, people, especially black folks, have the right to expect non-brutal policing, race-neutral policing, which means you go out and get the bad guys, but you don't subject innocent people, unarmed people, to the kind of humiliation that we see seemingly on a daily basis across the United States. And I think defunding the police would be counterproductive in the long run. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but that's just how I feel about it. The other thing that people have to be aware of, and it's, it's not the public, it's not ordinary, everyday, hardworking folks, but the police departments across America need to be clear that what they're doing and how they're acting, little by little, bit by bit, erodes their credibility among black people, Latino people, Asian people, people whose salaries are, uh, they, they actually pay for the policing. And the sad fact of the matter is that people need to be clear that if police cannot be trusted, and by the way, this is not recent, um, police making up stories or planting evidence or planting guns, that stuff goes back years and years, generations. But we're at a point now where police, if they don't clean up their act, good cops won't be believed when they have to testify in court or when they feed a particular narrative to the media. Now, you know, I, I believe that some of the things that need to be done might only nibble at the edges of the causes of police brutality. Now, again, I have friends who are cops. They tell me the police in big cities often just play the percentages when it comes to dealing with black people. They believe that two out of every three black people they come in contact with or stop are guilty of something. They don't make anywhere near the same presumption about interactions with white people. If they're wrong about a black person, it's simply no harm, no foul. This, is, this would explain, I believe, why stop and frisk was so often targeted at people of color before the courts stepped in. There's also the presumption that the police must use inordinate force to subdue and control black people. I've talked about this. You know, the sad part of all this is I talked about this a couple of episodes ago. And a lot of this crap has happened in the time since. There may well, and this is sad to contemplate, but there may well need to be a generational change in policing to affect any real change in that regard. That would mean implementing multiple changes 
all at the same time. It's going to take acknowledgement of the problem as a start. And I'm not sure police across America are prepared to tackle that problem. There is, however, a glimmer of hope. And it comes from Buffalo, New York. A black foreign police officer there, Carrie O'Horn, won a 15-year battle to both clear her name and receive back pay and pension benefits after being fired for stopping a colleague, another cop, from putting a suspect in a chokehold. She paid a heavy price for her intervention. Not only was she fired, but the cop involved successfully sued her and won $65,000. Yet Carrie O'Horn never gave up. And finally, a judge agreed she was wrongfully fired. Not only that, a 2020 law in Buffalo that requires police to act if they witness a colleague's brutality is named Carriel's Law, after Carriel Horn. The next time they decide to erect a statue in Buffalo, maybe they should do one in her honor. When we come back, more gun violence. The latest, Indianapolis, Indiana. Is there a solution to this crisis short of altering, God forbid, the Second Amendment? This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Media headlines say there's disbelief after a former Federal Express worker shot and killed eight people in Indianapolis. And it is interesting and tragic that apparently this young man who allegedly killed himself uh, actually, he's dead, so he either he did it or law enforcement did it, but law enforcement is saying he did it. He was already on law enforcement's radar. In fact, they confiscated a weapon from him not that long ago, and he went back out and got another one. That there's been a new mass shooting seems, as one novel once put it, like a blow upon a bruise. Considering that since the beginning of the year, the beginning of 2021, 64 people have lost their lives in mass shootings. And any attempt to rein in the weapons of mass destruction running rampant on the streets of American cities has met with the stiffest of resistance. And for the purposes of this, I do not separate gun violence. In other words, maybe... There's a situation where some person ends up with a gun and shoots somebody on the street, either accidentally or purposely. They go in a drive-by or whatever. That's gun violence, just like mass shootings are. And what ends up happening is that in some cases, some cases, not all, but in some cases, people delineate gun violence by race. In other words, well, you know, these inner city kids didn't have guns, then there wouldn't be gun violence, which of course is nonsense. Mass shootings take place all over America. 
all over America. And the stiff resistance is unnecessary. And I think soon there will be a day of reckoning where the back of that resistance, resistance to incremental steps to rein in gun violence, will crumble. Keep in mind that gun fanatics spent eight years warning that Barack Obama was coming for their guns. He did not. Maybe more people who died would not have if he had come for people's guns. Just like policing, there has got to be a day of reckoning about guns, mass shootings, and this country's love affair with firearms. Let's be clear. Guns in a FedEx warehouse or massage parlors in Atlanta aren't all that different from guns used by thugs on the streets of New York or Chicago. Firearms are firearms. I don't know about you, but I have friends who own legal firearms. I'm not a big firearm person. I've never been a, a big gun person. I learned how to shoot a rifle when I was in high school. And that was pretty much it for me. I don't think there's anything particularly noble about it. Uh, I don't think that there's anything uh, wonderful about, you know, shooting a, uh, an animal in the head at X number of feet. I, I just, that you lose me when it comes to that. But I understand that a lot of my friends who have legal guns engage in competitive shooting, skeet shooting, trap shooting, that sort of thing. None that I know of have ever fired a gun at another human being in anger or even in self-defense. Yet gun advocacy organizations like the National Rifle Association want people to believe law-abiding gun owners have something to fear from enhanced background checks and strict limits on certain assault weapons like the AR-15 or the AK-47. There must also be aggressive efforts to get other types of guns off our streets. That means whenever gun violence rears its head in black neighborhoods, the first question that ought to be asked in my humble judgment is, where did the gun come from? Which we don't hear all that much about. There's a report, and, and again, this is how off the wall this has become. There's a report of a teen from Ohio packing an AK-47 and a loaded magazine in a Times Square subway station in New York City. How in the world do young people, I think this guy was like 18, 19 years old, how do they manage to procure weapons like this? No, like policing, it is time to draw a line. It's time to say legitimate gun owners, no, we're not coming after your guns. We need your help in getting lethal weapons out of the hands of people who might use them to harm other people. It's obviously too much to ask Americans to join the rest of the civilized world in moving away from America's love affair with guns. Too much to ask, apparently. Even if people knew the actual history of the Second Amendment, which I could go and spend an entire episode chronicling, most people if they were told the truth, would not believe it. The fact is, current regulations and background checks have not served to stop mass shooters. It's as simple as that. The system in place 
is not working. The sad sequence of events has become numbingly familiar. There's a mass shooting. People struggle to figure out what drove the gunman to kill. And after a time, the media turns the cameras off and the public moves on. On, that is, until the next mass shooting. In the interim, gun advocates will trot out the usual brief quotes like, guns don't kill people, people kill people. I've heard them till I'm up to here with them, to be honest. It's past time for the narrative to change. Politically, the implosion of the National Rifle Association is a hopeful sign. But Republicans in Congress say they have no intention of letting responsible gun control laws pass. There is, as far as I'm concerned, no excuse for this. They say they're defending the Second Amendment. And now this just goes to show how off the wall some of these people are. Now they have begun to trot out the notion that gun control is racist. That's right. Gun control, background checks, uh, banning assault weapons, that sort of thing is now racism. Don't ask me how they come to that conclusion. I know why they've come to that conclusion, because the NRA is broke. They declared bankruptcy. They have no credibility as, uh, as an organization anymore. You know, they tried to move to Texas <laughs> to escape the wrath of Letitia James, New York State's Attorney General. That's deep in and of itself. The fact of the matter is, the notion that controls on guns somehow represents racism would be laughable if the number of people dying weren't so daunting. Republicans are grasping at straws in their opposition. Ironically, there's a school of thought among progressives that supports repealing the Second Amendment altogether. Barring that, and I don't think that's going to happen. Let me, let, let me be very clear. Um, despite the beginnings of the Second Amendment, which, by the way, all right, I'm going to say it just briefly. The Second Amendment came into being because there were people in America at that time, in the late 18th, early 19th century, who were scared to death of slave revolts. Do people even know that, for example, Eastern Virginia, the state of Virginia, Eastern Virginia, which was a wild card in the question of whether or not they would ratify the American Constitution. But Eastern Virginia had more black slaves than they had white people. And white people were scared to death. A, that fugitive slaves would be out here encouraging other slaves to rebel and revolt. And the fact of the matter is, they did not want the federal government, which was in its embryonic state at the time, they did not want the federal government telling them that they could not raise militias, remember there is the word militia in the Second Amendment, that they could not raise militias to go out and bring back runaway slaves and put down slave rebellions in their separate states. That was the root of the Second Amendment. Now, it didn't end up saying that was the reason why, but that was the origin 
You don't have to believe me. As they say, you can look it up, all right? The fact is, that's the Second Amendment that everybody gets so exercised about. But barring an attempt to repeal the Second Amendment, and keep in mind, amendments to the U.S. Constitution have been repealed before. That's why people can go out and drink, because they, in fact, passed an amendment, prohibition, and they repealed it about less than 20 years later, in point of fact. Now, barring a repeal of the Second Amendment, a new assault weapons ban, because we had one from 1994, I believe, till uh, 2004, and universal background checks would be a good place to start. We owe it to all the families who have lost loved ones in mass shootings and on the streets of our cities and towns to get something done. Responsible gun owners should be on our side in this. Maybe this time they will be, unlike in 2013 when they backed the NRA in shooting down a gun control bill. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.